You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culture Determined on Blogging Heads TV. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Alex Press. Uh, Alex, could you please introduce yourself? Sure. Hello there. I'm Alex. I'm a staff writer at Jacobin Magazine, and I also sort of freelance around various publications, generally writing about labor and the labor movement. Uh, so thanks for coming on. So that's going to be yeah the main topic today, um, labor issues, um, and the f- uh, there's certainly a lot, a lot to talk about. But the first thing is a uh, just a kind of somewhat surreal uh, item that you pulled out and uh, tweeted today, which was from an Amazon press release about all the great things they're doing to uh, make their workers' lives better, and um, and one of them is called Amazon. I guess that's how you pronounce it. So what is what is Amazon? Well, you pronounce it however you'd like because the word has just been coined today. So <laughs> um, so Amazon. So first of all, this press release that I pulled from this morning, um, Amazon obviously has gotten uh, quite a bit of criticism about the working conditions um, at the company, especially in its warehouses or as it calls them, fulfillment centers. Um, and so Bezos in his last letter as CEO of the company, I guess at this point two months ago, um, his letter to shareholders, he said he was going to focus on making this, you know, the best place to work on Earth. Um, and now Bezos always specifies on Earth because he has intergalactic um, aims. He wants to build societies outside of this um, planet. So it <laughs> makes him sound like an alien a lot of the time, um, which I find very funny. But so as far as Earth goes, he wants to make <laughs> Amazon the number one employer. Um, and so he said, you know, in res- that this was in part a response to the union campaign in Bessemer, Alabama, um, that is still ongoing, but at the time had just wrapped up the first vote at the National Labor Relations Board. Um, Amazon had, you know, won a resounding number of votes, um, overwhelming majority of the people who voted at that warehouse voted against the union, um, at least, you know, with many caveats that we'll go into, I'm sure. Um, and so Bezos said, am I happy about the result? No, because it shows that there are workers who are discontented. So he's going to do what he can. And so, you know, this got, as expected, a lot of applause from the business press who, you know, always seem to fall for this hook like line and sinker. Um, and so I was waiting to see what Amazon would do. And today was, you know, their big press release about what the actions they're taking to improve things at the workplace, um, none of which seemed to involve working less. Um, which one would think with all of the criticism about Amazon's quotas and productivity um, guidelines, that that would be the thing that would reduce injuries and make the work better. Um, Instead, no, we get many programs like Amazon, um, which I have pulled up the press release here, and the section on Amazon reads as follows. Guides employees through mindfulness practices in individual interactive kiosks at buildings. During shifts, employees can visit Amazon stations and watch short videos featuring easy-to-follow well-being activities, including guided meditations, positive affirmations, calming scenes with sounds, and more. Employees like Katie Miller from an Amazon Fulfillment Center in Aetna, Ohio, say the pilot program has been helpful. She shared, self-care is important, and Amazon gives me an opportunity to take time for myself to just pause and regroup, which helps me better at work. When I take that time, I come back to work more focused, and it has a lasting effect on the rest of my day. Um, This reads like one of my friends would have made it up and posted it on the internet, but this (laughs) really is uh, coming from Amazon's press release bank on its website. Yeah, well, okay. Uh, It's funny, your point about on Earth versus other possible places, 
is is very funny. And yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, uh, there's currently no law about, um, you know, labor relations on Mars. So maybe this is part of, you know, Bezos's uh, ultimate goal. But um, yeah, Amazon, it's a great name. I'll say that much. But it is it's like it's pretty dystopian. Um, and it's almost like something out of, um, you know, like wally or something where it's like you know the workers are like plugging into the kiosk for five minutes of zen and then they get right back to you know working as hard as they possibly can so okay so there's all so there's other things i assume in this press release you know maybe they're giving freedom back massages or something but is there anything related to higher wages fewer hours or better benefits no okay those, uh, <laughs> those you would say that, or the company would say that these are all benefits, of course, all these things. They they note that they're spending $300 million on safety projects in 2021 on their mission to be Earth's safest place to work, um, which, you know, is a minuscule amount of the profits that this company has gotten over the last year. I mean, Amazon has just ballooned during the pandemic. And so while $300 million certainly it can sound to a regular person like us, like a lot of money, you know, this is like a penny for us, you know, it's nothing. Um, and again, that's because Amazon's entire model is predicated on exploitation. So they are not going to actually, you know, change that model and, and do what would be required to make these safer places to work. They're going to tinker around the edges and, you know, throw the equivalent of some pocket change at the problem. Um, so, yeah, so Amazon, you know, uh, was, it, it was a big part of last year of the COVID-19 pandemic, which, you know, of course is still continuing. Um, and you could say in a, you know, Amazon was a big winner of, of the pandemic because uh, if people didn't want to go to the store to buy stuff, they were, they switched to Amazon. So they hired tons more people. I assume the profits went up a lot, you know, more. Yeah, just like it, it, it probably things would have played out differently if Amazon, you know, magically ceased to exist um, before the pandemic. And there wasn't a website to replace it. Like it would have been harder to, you know tell people stay at home all the time if they can't get uh, products uh, sent to them conveniently in the mail. Um, so do you think, and then, but then, you know, a lot, there was a lot of reporting, some that you did about mistreatment of workers um, over the past year as, you know, they, more and more people were ordering things from Amazon um, and uh, complaints about, you know, not getting the right safety equipment and the, and just the, standard things about the number of hours worked and how and like repetitive stress injuries to the uh, warehouse workers or fulfillment center center workers. Um, and, and you mentioned this, um, this big uh, union vote that happened in Bessemer, Mississippi or Alabama, Alabama, Alabama. And there was a lot of, at least from the left Twitter personalities, I followed. there's a lot of excitement about it. And then uh, it did not go, well, for the pro-union side. So where do you, um, where do you, I mean, do you think Amazon, okay, so Amazon is not gonna really start treating its workers better uh, as we emerge from the pandemic because they're giving them little, you know, zen, five, like five minutes of zen, and then they're then they're right back at it. So but then, the, the, you know, this union drive that seemed, un it was unusual that like the first major Amazon worker union drive happened in a very red state that would be as someone who doesn't know much about it, I would consider it, you know, pretty anti uh, anti union right to work state, yeah. whatever. Where do you where do you see all this stuff going? Um, yeah. So so as as is intimated by the extent of that question, so a lot has happened in the past year year and a half, right? And so just to give like a short 
version of that. I, I just want people to know the scale that we're talking, right? Because I think everybody knows Amazon has, as you said, it's, it's one of the winners of the pandemic, but it is really hard to convey how much growth Amazon has gotten. So, you know, a Wall Street analyst early in the pandemic said that in, in noting sort of trends in the market that the pandemic has been like a growth hormone for Amazon. So I was already writing about Amazon before the pandemic, talking to warehouse workers in particular, um, and it was already one of the largest employers, one of the biggest companies in the world, most powerful, um, but it has just transformed. So there is almost no precedent for the amount of hiring. You know, the the New York Times tried to find a precedent and looked at sort of, you know, people who, factories that built um, aircraft carriers during World War II as like maybe that level of hiring might be the precedent. But we're talking about almost 500,000 people hired in the United States within 10 months um, during the first 10 months of the pandemic. So just crazy, crazy growth. Um, and so then on the the sort of flip side is the, of that is that workers were sort of, you know, Amazon was moving so fast, right? Um, and is so careless in the first place about workers' safety that workers were really suffering, especially in the warehouses. So there was a lot of organizing because there wasn't adequate um, personal protective equipment. There were outbreaks in the facilities and workers were not being informed. You know, I personally spoke to Workers who were, you know, would cry while speaking to me because they were terrified. They knew there were outbreaks and they weren't. The company was refusing to tell them how big these were, was refusing to pay them to stay home. You know, you could only get any kind of payment to stay home if you'd already tested positive for COVID. And even then, that was hard to sort of prove because if you remember, you know, it was hard in the early months of the pandemic to even get tests. Mm -hmm. um, not to, especially if you're, say, like a low wage worker who can't even get time off work in the first place. Um, and there were surveys being self-administered by Amazon workers showing the, the extent to which there was not enough equipment in the facilities, the extent to which they were, you know, Amazon was saying that they were socially distanced and they completely were not reporting that at all. Um, anyway, so on and so forth, this fueled a lot of organizing, right? And one result of that was the Bessemer campaign, which was very unusual in that, you know, I think a lot of Amazon warehouse workers have really complained about unions' reticence to start organizing campaigns at these facilities, um, and the labor movement, for its part, has always has long sort of said implicitly that they just aren't strong enough to take on Amazon, right, that these campaigns won't win. Um, and so they don't want to take them on. Um, so this was really notable that a union was finally an established union was finally willing to try this, to be serious about it, you know, not to even just start an organizing campaign, but to actually file an election and go forward with it. Um, and so in that sense, you know, I think it was a very good thing, even when it, even though it has sort of lost, um, at least so far, it certainly didn't get the result that the NLRB people wanted. Um, to me, that's a good thing, you know, because these warehouse workers actually are sort of learning from that experience. The unions are learning from that experience. You know, you have to throw stuff at the wall to figure out what works with something like Amazon. Um, but that said, you know, it was a setback. Like the vote was something like 1800 against versus 800 in favor of the union. Um, Caveat being that there's probably going to be a new election. It looks like Amazon did break the law. Um, and what, so, okay, there was various things I saw online about that. What, what, um, what that was proved that they actually did? To, to so, the so nothing has been proven yet. The NLRB hearings are actually happening right now. Um, they started last week. I, I tuned in at first, but the, we're talking like eight hours of just uh, <laughs> slow movement day after day. So I haven't been watching. Um, but just today, documents um, were, you know, yesterday or a couple days ago, a worker testified that Amazon had keys to a mailbox that held ballots um, that the company itself had insisted be placed on the company property. 
Um, so the NLRB had said, you can't have a drop box. You know, we need this to be a fair election. Um, workers cannot be, you know, sort of um, in any way coerced to vote on the company property. Um, and we can't give the impression that Amazon has control over any of those votes. So that was what the NLRB said before the voting period started. It was a mail-in ballot because of the pandemic, so not in person. Um, and yet there was a USPS mailbox installed on company property. And this, for the union, RWDSU, became a big point of contention. They said that was illegal, that this was violating the NLRB's ruling and also was being seen as a sort of coercive measure for the workers. They felt they were being pressured to vote there. They were convinced that Amazon could somehow access those votes, could see how they voted. Um, you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to think that. I mean, Amazon does have the sort of cutting edge of worker surveillance technology. So it's, I think, pretty understandable for people to assume that. Mm -hmm. um, but that said, there was nothing proven. So after the vote was counted, the, the union involved the RWDSU um, filed objections with the NLRB. So they said that they felt Amazon had violated the law. They listed the ways um, and the NLRB found that to be compelling. And so they scheduled these hearings that are now going on. And so a worker the other day said that they had seen Amazon security guards have keys to the mailbox, access the mailbox, which of course would be a violation. You know, there's all these rituals about neither side being able to access these ballots. You know, it's usually very carefully guarded. Um, so if that was the case, that would obviously be a violation. Um, and then today at the ruling, emails were entered that showed that actually some of the top Amazon executives had ordered that mailbox be installed, had really said this was a key um, objective of the company. Um, so that certainly doesn't look good. I, I sort of joke that it's amateur hour for Dave Clark, who is sort of the number two at Amazon right now, or number three. Um, he was linked to these emails saying, you know, this is a company priority that we install this mailbox. Um, so it raises a lot of interesting questions. Amazon's power over USPS is a question. Amazon violating workers' rights. This is, is probably the biggest customer for USPS, right? Yes. Yeah. So anyway, that's all speculative. But the fact that it's even gotten to this point where those emails are being entered, they're seen as credible. Like it is not. I think it's fair to say that something was going on there. And so the odds that this might end in a rerun of the election, I think, are pretty pretty high right now. Okay, but so but there's probably if the since the ballot you know count that was counted was pretty lopsided. Yeah. It seems like even if there was 100% fair, provably fair election, Amazon would probably still win or, or maybe Yeah, not. I mean, that's that's the thing is that um, this is sort of a bigger conversation to be. I think we should personally, I think that, you know, workers should have the right to run an election. And if there was violations going on, they should be able to rerun it. Whether they could win that election is a different question. Right. So I think one big lesson for a lot of people who don't follow sort of labor politics that closely, but did with this union vote in Bessemer, I think one lesson was just how unfair this process is. Right. So what I think is, you know, and I think a lot of people in the labor movement agree is if workers had the right to choose with no coercion, no fear, no fear of retaliation, you know, the workers in Bessemer would choose every single day a union. But that is not the world we exist in. So these workers were subject to months of fear, of confusion, of exhaustion. They held captive audience meetings where they had to listen to their managers, you know, spend hours telling them why they shouldn't vote for a union. And imagine, I mean, this is a company that's famous for tracking every second of a worker's productivity. And all of a sudden, they're finding hours of their shift to sit in meetings and listen to management. I mean, like, how insulting is that, right? You're like, wait a minute. So you could find time for us to use the bathrooms. Yeah, know? maybe. They, yeah, they offered um, the people a bathroom break. And on the way out, right. they uh, said, you have to come listen to this. Um, 
Yeah. So I won't go. So all of which is just to say that, like, there's been an incredible anti-union campaign run. You know, some lawyers are estimating Amazon has spent millions of dollars, you know, busting this union. So I don't know how, uh, you know, a new election will go. Um, but I do think the takeaway should really be that, like, that is how it works in the United States. And people who didn't know that should know that, um, that workers effectively do not have um, the right to collective bargaining, the right to assembly, the right to free speech. I think people should not proceed forward as if those rights exist for workers on the shop floor. They do not. Um, and so I think that is a key thing we should sort of take from how this has gone so far. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that it was a uh, like a strategic miscalculation to pour all these resources into an area um, that may not have been ripe for a unionization push to begin with, and maybe they should have tried, you know, somewhere in the Midwest that has more of a union history? I really don't know. I mean, I sort of tend to say no, um, in that, you know, RWDSU had already been involved in organizing a New York City warehouse, um, and Amazon had fired a worker there, had retaliated. That's part of a lawsuit that the attorney general of um, New York has filed against the company. Um, so it's not like the union chose to organize Bessemer. The union did what a lot of us on the left in the labor movement advocate, which is take the workers lead. It was the workers in that facility who reached out to them and said, we need a union. Um, and RWDSU, to its credit, took their call and set up a meeting. And, you know, when they saw the extent of the problems and the amount of support and sort of agitation that was going on, they said, okay, fine, let's do it. Um, and so I certainly do not want to be someone who says unions should not take risks and should actually ignore workers' calls when they're um, in distress. Um, but so my my view on this is that you learn and you move forward. Like the struggle is still continuing. The workers in that warehouse are still pro-union that were pro-union before the vote. Workers in other warehouses are still organizing. I hear from them all the time. It's happening anyway. And they're taking a look at what happened in Bessemer and they're moving forward. Mm -hmm. So that's my perspective on it is that people are learning from it and, you know, um, don't try the exact same thing again necessarily, but, you know, at least someone has tried it at this point. Um, how do you think, uh, so clearly if, you know, the number two or number three people at Amazon are, like, emailing about how this should be, you know, this little, like, dinky place no one had heard before, um, how the union drive should be uh, countered, then the, peep, the the honchos at Amazon think it's very much not in their, in their interest to have a union. How... You know, obviously you are a labor reporter of Socialist Magazine, so you think unions are good, but how would, um, like, what could the union change if, you know, a warehouse, Amazon warehouse was, was unionized? Um, you know, what, what are actual improvements that could happen and, or what are things that the, you know, Amazon propaganda says could happen that wouldn't happen or, or maybe even right. could happen? Who knows? Like, I'm sure it would cut into their profit, like, it would cut into Amazon profits in some ways and, like, Amazon, you know, capital doesn't want to want his profits. Yeah, cut, I so. mean, profits obviously are part of the equation and it's a big part. But I think there's something that overlaps but is separate than profits, which is about power. Right now, Amazon has dictatorial power over its workforce, right? It does not have to obey anything it doesn't want to do. You know, it can let workers go as it sees fit. Um, it chose to raise the wage to $15 an hour, right? So it's up to Amazon what it does. You know, it has to obey basic federal law. It can't pay under 725, for example, but it's pretty much free to do as it pleases inside the shop. A union is the term we use to describe workers organizing together, right? So if they grant recognition to workers having the right to sit at a table and make demands, that is a huge deal for Amazon because, again, its business model is about total control over workforces, right? Setting the terms of their employment, 
deciding whether they're employees or not, deciding what rights they do and do not have. Um, and so this is, I mean, companies see this as an existential threat. It's not just Amazon. Amazon just happens to have the most resources. So we sort of see it operating right now in the midst of all of this change and growth. But so things that concretely, you know, a union could do on the shop floor, um, there are things that range from just cause. So workers can't just be let go for any reason at all. There's, um, they could mandate things around policies around sick pay, sick leave. Um, you know, workers at Bessemer in particular complained about, you know, for example, if their kid's sick and they have to take off work, they can be fired for that, right? So the union, you would imagine this happens in a lot of contracts is it advocates around like workers have the right to, you know, care for sick loved ones and we have X number of sick days, right? Um, workers, you know, there are all sorts of things like that. If there are problems, you know, famously at Amazon around restroom use, you know, there you could imagine a contract would actually have some sort of say around not just paid breaks um, at the level of like what's legally required for a company, but also sort of additional understanding of, you know, how much time it takes to get to the bathroom in these giant facilities, things like that, right? So, I mean, unions can can bargain around all sorts of issues, um, you know, down to things like healthcare or even, you know, parking, you know, really sort of minor things, but that establish a sense of like making this job a livable job for people. Um, so all of that are sort of concrete things. Um, but I think also what sometimes gets underrated, I think, by a lot of people is a sense of actual dignity that comes with a union. Being able to sit down across from your boss and know that he has to take seriously your demands and come to an agreement, you know, that actually is a big driver of union campaigns and also sort of um, priorities in union contracts. And certainly Amazon workers say this all the time, that they just feel that they're treated like subhuman, either they're robots or they feel they, you know, words like disrespect come up a lot. Um, and I think some people like to try to be very objective analysts or whatever and say, you know, well, they would get X amount per hour, but it's, you really underrate what it means to be sort of taken seriously and and know that your boss can't just treat you like, you know, trash. Um, and so that motivates these campaigns as well, especially yeah. Amazon. Yeah. So, you know, uh, you can't really quantify dignity or respect. <laughs> Those are right. outside the, you know, <laughs> uh, economic realm or something. I'm thinking of um, the uh, writer, uh, Chris Arnotti. He produced this book uh, titled Dignity. Uh, uh, he was interviewing people all across the country, kind of on the edges of uh, society. Um, and, yeah, that seemed to be, uh, you know, part of what people want, uh, beyond just the material, uh, improvement in, in material conditions, which, which anyone would want. Um, mm -hmm. okay. So, so, so Bezos is out or on his way out, technically. Well, are out, things going to change or, or, or is yeah, it almost fake to begin with or? Out was, is not the right word. I mean, he's still going to be a, a holding high position. He's still the founder. He still controls an immense amount of shares in the company, for example. He, you know, Amazon is, particularly controlled by Bezos. And so him stepping down as CEO um, is not actually a huge difference. I think he's still going to be very involved in, say, for example, these efforts to, you know, to me, our PR efforts um, to combat the sort of view about Amazon's working conditions. So he's still going to be involved in that as well. But what if he really is interested in colonizing Mars or something? And this is, he, I mean, he's sort of a, like all these types, like Musk and Bill Gates and, uh, and Bezos, they seem to have a sort of, um, you know, megalomaniacal like vision of themselves. And right. maybe uh, he really does want to like explore the cosmos or something. And he well, cares he about that does. more than 
uh, you know, giving like 15 minute bathroom breaks every two hours to his workers or something. And, and so maybe he's just going to be focused on the heavens <laughs> or something and not, not the Yeah, party. I mean, if, had he renounced all his positions at Amazon, you might say that. But it is true that he is, I mean, he always has reserved time for Blue Origin, his like rocket ship company. Um, and again, like Bezos is has been very consistent. His high school valedictorian speech was about going to space. Um, he and his high school girlfriend, you know, sort of famously told reporters when he first became a known entity that he always said he was only going to get wealthy because that's what he had to do in order to go to space. So, I mean, Bezos is not uh, this is not a new interest for him. That truly has always been his sort of driving motive. Um, I think there's something interesting to be said about like him and Musk both having these interests and what it says about sort of our ruling class right now that these are the types that uh, sort of rise above but I yeah. think and, and the, yeah. the Virgin Atlantic guy what is that guy's name Richard um, right Richard Branson he, he's interested um, in stuff as well he's he kind of faded I guess his version has kind of faded as well true. and I mean this is all like fascinating or like at times even funny or quirky but I think what actually is relevant here at least in how Bezos conceptualizes this is he's always sort of seen the colonization of space as what we do he says to I think in some line he used long ago, um, that's what we're going to do to save Earth, right? So he says that there are all these environmental problems and we're never going to fix them. And so we are going to go to space because we aren't going to take action on Earth, right? And, you know, we there aren't enough resources, so we're going to need some of the population to live, you know, in space or on another planet. So as absurd as this sounds, it really is their driving understanding of their business model. So when people say about Amazon that it, is bad for the planet, that emissions are incredibly high, it's destructive, uses too many resources. This is actually as key is that, you know, Bezos doesn't believe we will ever fix those problems. And so it is not such a big deal that Amazon is contributing to them, right? So in that sense, it really has material impacts, you know, as far as how these companies understand what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I mean, it's in some way... It's crazy. Yeah, it's kind of crazy it's because crazy. it's obviously, like, who knows if it's ever it ever could happen that like humans could live on Mars, but it certainly seemed to be more difficult to make that happen to the sort of try to fix the problems that we already have on, on this planet where like there's oxygen already and, and water. Right. Um, so, so there's that, but I, I guess the, the, the part of it that maybe I can sort of see is this idea of like, it's like the uh, Alan Moore Watchman sort of thing where it starts like the only thing that can like unite us all is if we like are looking like, you know, elsewhere, and there's all this stuff about UFOs and the news in the past couple of days. So <laughs> right. it, it is like if, if there was, you know, not that Bezos is thinking about like the space laser or something, uh, or even the Jewish space laser uh, that we've heard talked about recently. But um, yeah, just like you know, you could imagine you know something uniting humanity uh, <laughs> somehow. It wasn't the COVID nineteen virus clearly. Like this, this uh, drove people apart. Um, so I mean, the, the the ironic thing here, of course, is that at least what, in my view of things, you know, what is uniting humanity is Amazon, is that we've all are residents of the empire of Amazon. And that sort of brings together. I mean, I just wrote an article well, this it. morning. <laughs> well, I just I wrote an article this morning for a South African pu- workers publication. Right. That was about, you know, and, you know, the reasons that we have connections is that we all are dealing with the same opponent right now. And so. I mean, this is the classic Marxist argument, right? That the the boss is bringing the workers together and, you know, building its own destructive uh, force, right? And so in that sense, I mean, it is interesting that everybody around the planet is now fighting Amazon. And so it does sort of build this basis for... Well, I mean, some people are fighting it. Other people are enjoying, um, you know, a number of streaming shows. Uh, Fleabag, right. uh, very good. Um, I, you know, I gave up on the Romanoffs after one episode. But, uh, you know, so they have a lot of that. 
the thing that they do have that connects the world is Amazon Web Services, um, sure. which I think actually, um, if you are watching this or at the Bloggate's website, you are participating in Amazon Web Services because they right. take like one third of the global traffic. And so you could kind of see that as like the global brain that, um, yes. you know, Teilhard de Chardin uh, theorized 100 years ago, but Bob Wright, founder of the site, has talked about that a lot. But, um, mm. okay, so, but that leads me to think, and this is not exactly your area, you know, Amazon. So yeah, Amazon uh, shipping, it manufactures products that it sells. It has uh, cloud storage, web hosting, uh, mm -hmm. streaming music, um, original programming, television, um, right. uh, podcasts. Uh, they own uh, Audible. Um, so there's th Echo and Alexa. There's recognition, facial recognition technology. Yeah, so, this is, so they, yeah. They, they have, intentionally or not, there's this crazy different number of like parts of business, yeah. Is it possible that there will be some sort of antitrust movement against it, or to just say like, okay, you have like the web services has to be split off from the commerce, or this thing where you can't? They would possibly prohibit Amazon from selling its own manufactured products alongside other people's products. Do you think any of that could could happen? Yeah, I mean that totally might happen. They've certainly even the Biden administration, which of course to be clear is like deeply tied to certain parts of Amazon um, at the executive level and at the cabinet level. Um, even then, they've elevated antitrust advocates who've who've sort of made their name on arguing to for breaking up Amazon. I think there's you know plenty of legal basis for. I, I do believe Amazon obviously is a monopoly and a monopsony, and you know there's plenty of reason to say that, for example, Amazon should not be able to sell its own goods alongside its competitors when it's analyzing their data um, and sort of reverse engineering products to outsell its competitors. Same thing about using AWS's profit, which is huge, is immense. It's just an incredible um, sort of moneymaker for the company to prop up less profitable endeavors. I mean, all of that is true, but none of that is going to really fix any of these labor problems, right? And as as we know, you know, this is the profit model itself sort of tends towards concentration and monopoly. And so, you know, you cut off one arm, another one grows back, I think is... Not, it, it, you know, I think people on the left should absolutely sort of support antitrust efforts, but at the same time, you know, there is, you can't keep trying to break up Amazon from the top. You know, it's about actually bringing the power down to the people at the shop floor. Well, they they haven't really tried from the top to begin with at, at this point. Well, they, um, I'm and I'm saying that that would not fix the problem. Right. So I, I think it would. Yeah, you'll probably need a, a two prongs. You know, top top down and bottom up efforts. Okay, but then at the same time, like I was, I was joking about before. Uh, they provide all these goods and services that a number of people enjoy, including me. I, I have Amazon Prime. Um, they are and... the most trusted institution in America by Democrats. Really? Not Republicans? Uh, they're number three for Republicans beyond, behind the military and local police. Okay, that's funny. I wonder where the Trump Organization ranks. Uh, <laughs> ranks <laughs> right, that, that, that survey might have been, I think, 2018. So, yeah, I'm not sure. Um, okay, so, so then... You know, it like it really, like they it really does work. Like you order something, you click, and you get it. Like it, it's increased even in the past year or so how quickly you can get things. Uh, it used right. to be two days, now it's often the next day. It's it's like incredible, and yeah, it was super great during the pandemic. Um, is so there are good things about about that because I can order a cat toy and get it the next day, and then my cat is happy. Um, I, but I would I would hope that the you know the worker who is stuffing the envelope, you know, isn't like suffering cri crippling back pain from all this stuff. But 
I, I don't know, for the average American consumer, they probably think more about getting the nice product quickly than, you know, where it was made or how it was packaged and so forth. Yes, so, I mean, this is this is what platform monopolies are for, is that they prop themselves up with immense amounts of money pumped in until they gain monopoly dominance over a market and they become deep buried into the marrow of the body of a society until it's infrastructure and we're all relying on it, right? And so that's Uber's model and that's Amazon's model. They've accomplished it. Right, but but Uber basically just supplanted the taxi business and you could have imagined a different outcome where the taxi companies banded together and made something that increased the convenience level and the way that Uber does but but Amazon really like you know you you had you used to have to go to a store <laughs> if you wanted to yeah. make a make a purchase you know I guess there's the like uh, Sears or Roebuck or something for back in the day but that would take a long time to get to you so they really did they have made these improvements in connecting you know buyers and sellers and um, products with people who want to purchase them yep. um, and you know I remember um, you know around the time when I was maybe in college or shortly thereafter. There's a documentary that came out called Walmart, the, the High Cost of a Low Price. I don't know if you remember that one. Um, that sounds familiar, but I can't remember it. Yeah. So, it would have been, you know, it was, so Walmart was like the, you know, the Bush era uh, enemy of, you know, like left labor and just, uh, you know, right thinking uh, liberals would be like, oh, Walmart, it's like destroying mainstream America and stuff. Right. And who even thinks about Walmart anymore? I mean, it's it's like Amazon is completely supplanted. Obviously, there's still probably... 2,000 Walmarts across the country. and It's still can, the largest employer. People continue. Employer. Okay, so it's bigger than, it is bigger than Amazon still. Yes. Um, so, and, and it pays less, to be clear. And Walmart has tried, it does have an e-commerce part of it, and I guess there's probably options where um, you, know, you order something and you pick it up at your local Walmart if it takes longer for, if you're like a rural area or it takes longer for the mail to deliver something to you. But um, yeah, it just like, you know, Walmart just offered everything cheap in one place, but Amazon is just like kind of swamped it in terms of how good it is for the, for the consumer, because you can get anything from anywhere in the world and you don't even have to have to leave your house. And a lot of people didn't want to leave their house for good reason right. last year. So I don't know. So it, it, it's, it's not just like, um, you know, Ma Bell or something where they, got this monopoly for, you know, like reasons of being the ones who like strung the lines up in 1910 or something. I've tried the facts mm -hmm. of that wrong, but like they're, they, they've won because like the service is so good. Yeah. And so that's makes me think it's going to be harder for either workers or even, you know, government bureaucrats or something to try to dismantle them because, you know, it doesn't take the genius of Jay Carney to, um, to say like, don't you like your, 24-hour delivery, and, and you get this little <laughs> cat toy or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then, so people like their Amazon, and they're going to keep yeah. using it. I mean, again, I use the category of platform companies like Amazon, and I'm comparing it to Uber, for example, because this is a particular sort of um, political model where they unite consumers, because consumers have such sort of close ties, as you're demonstrating right now, sort of this like emotional sort of love of the company that they actually wield that, I think, in a, in a somewhat unique or new or different way than old brands against elected officials, right? They sort of say, don't you dare regulate us because, you know, your, your own constituents are going to be very mad that they can't get same day delivery, right? 
or that they can't have, you know, call up an Uber that they have to deal with public transit or, you know, limited taxis or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that is, it's a specific mode of political engagement that I think Amazon and other companies like Uber have really perfected and wielded in a good way. We saw it with Uber and Lyft in California, as far as driving voters to sort of support um, their proposition, you know, the proposition vote that they had written themselves to exclude their drivers from um, access to labor law and workers' rights and protections. Um, They sort of directly in the app said, make sure that you vote the way we want you to. And I think Amazon often wields power in a similar way by reminding elected officials that, you know, your constituents are with us, not with you. Um, They support our company over over their support for you as an elected official. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine, like, Amazon hasn't done anything, as far as I know, heavy-handed to try to like promote various candidates, but you can imagine like, oh, they're putting a flyer in each package now that says vote for candidate X in some mayoral race or something. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they've done something like this, but I guess that maybe they would fear the backlash on that. But like, you know, it's, it's mainly, be- it seems to me mainly because like the service does work so well that, you know, people, people do like it. And, and so the, you know, going against it either from, Top down or bottom up is just starting now, and it. I hope it succeeds, uh, at least at least somewhat. But um, I don't know. I mean, I guess I, I don't know. Do you? So, but part of asking about Bezos stepping back is like, is Amazon just sort of like a, like the natural endpoint of like consumer capitalism or something? And that even if you know uh, we appointed uh, Bernie Sanders CEO, or it, it would just like the, the force, the internal mechanics of it, and the uh, you know forces of market economics would would continue to push in the way, in the way it does? Or, or do you think, like, is there, is there like a good version of Amazon that could exist? Well, sure. There's plenty. Sure. If there's something that's not oriented around, you know, exploiting workers and maximizing profits, but if there was actually public ownership in some sense, or if there was actually, you know, which would in a, in a way just look like rebuilding infrastructure in this country. Um, yes. I think better infrastructure that could deliver goods to you um, would be a good thing. Um, I don't think that's what Amazon is, but I think it's, you know, we could have the same function done by something that wasn't a capitalist entity, and that mm-hmm. would be fine. Um, it's not like we don't have drivers who get paid good wages and have a union. Um, that exists. Um, it's just about, you know, whether we're talking about public ownership or or private profit-oriented um, things. I don't think it makes any sense to talk about, like, you know, can we appoint, what would it look like if Sanders ran Amazon? I mean, I would rather talk about um, actually how to fix problems, not sort of like imagine something like that. But, pu- but public ownership of Amazon or an Amazon-like entity is also seems very much outside the realm of American uh, possibility right now. Um, right now, for sure. Okay, but it's a long game um, <laughs> and, uh, in, in the labor movement. There's one other thing I want to ask about Amazon. So you did like a short piece on Jay Carney, mentioned him. So he is like sort of the head of communications but also policy has a policy yes. role at amazon and he yeah. previously was in the obama administration and before that was a journalist and so he was at time magazine and then he was biden's spokesperson or communications head comms director okay yeah. when um biden was vice president and then yeah. he became white house press secretary and then mm-hmm. he left is is now at amazon um and i i mean i don't know he seems sort of like so obviously he's a, a Democrat and he's friends with Joe Biden um, and, you know, likes Barack Obama, but also, you know, takes a paycheck from Amazon. He seems, I guess he's like personal 
you know, inner life doesn't particularly matter. But um, one thing, I, I, I will include the link to this piece. One thing that did strike me is that you note how the, the lobbying, the amount that Amazon spends on lobbying in D.C., like mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, it was five million, and it rose to eighteen million. And I yeah. thought, wow, that is almost nothing when you think about how much <laughs> money Amazon makes. They probably make that right. in like three minutes or even even less. Um, right. And so that's a total drop in the bucket to them. Mm-hmm. And if they, you know, so they have all this, you know, they could ramp up their lobbying by like ten times, and then I don't know if they'd be ten times as effective, but it would do something more. And so like they haven't fully. Like it doesn't, it, just in terms of cash, it doesn't take that much. And right. yeah, there's also like, as I was saying earlier, there's a sort of, you know, sense that like, oh, what's good for Amazon is good for America or something. Um, and so, but again, it's this, it's this sense that politicians have to operate with sort of this understanding of that they need to act in Amazon's interests, right? Amazon doesn't actually have to pay that much money to get politicians to think that way. Right. Um, and I think you know. Amazon is just a great example of what state capture at every level of the state looks like. So down from like county executive boards that are deciding, you know, how many tax breaks to give an Amazon data center or Amazon warehouse, um, you know, that operates, you know, in these sort of grim, um, nondescript uh, boardrooms in the county building where, you know, one you know, person just sort of says, here's what Amazon wants, here's what we should give them, and everyone unanimously votes. It takes 20 minutes um, to grant Amazon, say, $200 million in tax breaks to build a location or something, all the way up to, of course, like the executive level and what a Biden or someone around Biden would think. Um, And so, yeah, a lot of times, I mean, the way capital works is that politicians are terrified of blocking jobs and blocking, you know, access to better goods for their constituents. And so just knowing that an Amazon facility might offer jobs for a place that doesn't have them operates, you know, without Amazon having to spend a penny to make sure that politicians are going to sort of pass um, subsidies or bills or whatever in their favor. Right. So yeah, Amazon, even though it is spending now more at, in DC than any other tech com- big tech company, um, that's still a drop in the bucket. Totally. Yeah. Um, Okay, we talked about Amazon a lot, and that even wasn't the original thing that I wanted to talk to you about. Right, right, yeah. So let's let's switch. And so you wrote you wrote a piece about Chipotle, and yeah. um, this piece for multiple reasons convinced me to stop uh, eating at Chipotle, which I wasn't doing a ton, but um, uh, maybe two or three times the past year. But um, so and the headline was Chipotle is a criminal enterprise built on exploitation. Um, so okay, tell us about Chipotle, which in some ways is sort of like the Amazon of food, the food, you know. Yeah, in certain ways, though, I don't actually know, you know, what the ranking of sort of the biggest of fast food or fast casual is off the top of my head. Um, Obviously, McDonald's is, uh, in one sense, the uh, Amazon of fast food. Um, So the sort of reason for the article is that um, New York has filed a lawsuit against Chipotle, alleging that they owe $150 million in back wages um, to all of their workers over a two year period from late 2017 to 2019 is the period of the suit. Um, and the, the suit also would then cost Chipotle $300 million in civil penalties. Um, so this is because Chipotle was violating um, workers' laws, like labor laws in New York City. Um, fair work week law is something that passed um, in 2017, which just was sort of the intent was to make fast food workers' lives more predictable, right? So they need to get two weeks' notice for schedules, if their schedule has changed within that two-week period, the company needs to offer a, p- a premium, give them money um, to compensate for the inconvenience. 
There are other things in there like um, a law around clopening, as it's called. I don't know if you ever worked jobs that had that. I did um, where you work the closing shift and then you do the opening shift the next morning. Okay, um, so then you're, you know, you're working like past 11 and then you need to like get there at right. 6 a.m. or something like that? Yeah, so it's really inconvenient. And so for that, the Fair Work Week law, actually you have to get written consent from the worker agreeing to it and give them a $100 pay premium. Um, so things like that. So just trying to make workers' lives a little more predictable. Obviously, last minute scheduling is a huge problem in service work in general, but especially fast food. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and so, so this was a this was a New York City law or New York State law? Yes, New York City. Okay. Um, and so that passed in 2017, and uh, this lawsuit alleges 600,000 violations by Chipotle. So they said the average every worker experienced an average of three and a half violations per week. Um, which is just crazy. Um, And, you know, the New York City had actually filed a previous complaint against Chipotle, and they tried to give them time to, you know, come into compliance with the laws. And this lawsuit says that, well, Chipotle sort of made some amount of effort. um, It was still systematically violating the laws. It also was violating sick sick leave law that had passed in, I think, 2014. Um, So its policy was an explicit um, violation of the law. It said that Workers had to find people to cover shifts they were missing if they were sick. It said that they couldn't use sick leave to care for loved ones. They can only use it for themselves. Um, so they were just like written into the policies of the company are violations of labor law. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so that was the reason for the article. But I mean, Chipotle is sort of I, the more I talk to workers at Chipotle, um, it's just a stunning um, situation. Like it, the violations of workers' rights um, it's just built into the model and is so common. I mean, I was just writing a follow-up today after talking to a lot of workers who got in touch after that first article. And it's just, you know, it, this is relevant for people who eat at Chipotle to your point of why you would have stopped eating there in that, you know, what workers are describing here is just complete ignore. No, there's no time to follow sort of best practices for safety and food cleanliness and things right. like so that. So why don't you talk about the rats? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. So in December of last year, I wrote the first thing I wrote about Chipotle was because I spoke to workers in New York City, Chipotle's, who had been bitten by rats at, at stores that the company knew had rat infestations and had kept open. Um, and so and so one worker I spoke to, um, he was the fourth person at the store bitten by a rat. Um, and I think the New York Post had first gone public with this rat problem. And this sounds right up, right up their alley. Yeah, exactly. It was like a classic headline <laughs> or whatever. Um, and so Chipotle, in response, when that finally went public, they had closed the store, but it turned out they were still having the workers come in to clean, um, which is insane. They should just have an exterminator, right? Like, you know, workers who are making minimum wage should not be the ones tasked with dealing with a rat problem in New York City. Um, And so that was when this person got bit was when the store had already been closed. And so only when a manager was bitten by a rat did they finally stop having people come in. Um, And so just to be clear, like in the past week, speaking with other Chipotle workers, what they're describing here is when they're pushed so hard with such high productivity expectations, they say, you know, that almost never does anyone wash their hands. Um, They say no one temp checks the meat. No one is cleaning, you know, when there's just steak juice sitting on the, you know, sort of cutting board, there's no, there's no time to clean it. Um, so every time your food tastes kind of weird at Chipotle, um, it's because they're 
totally not cleaning anything. Um, and every worker is, again, it's not that the workers are being careless. They say that they have no time at all to do any of this, that the boss knows that they don't have time. Um, and that actually, this is a big part of the model. You know, their incentive pay for GMs of stores, um, where if they keep labor loss down, labor costs down below average, they get up to 25% bonuses. Um, so this is, you know, built into Chipotle's model. And so I totally, I mean, I also would not eat at Chipotle anymore after speaking to workers because also, you know, during the pandemic, I've talked to workers who were speaking to me as their stores were having coronavirus outbreaks and the store was staying open. Chipotle refused to close for cleaning or to allow workers to stay home. So yeah, I would just, I've never like reported on a company where I was like, you know, I would never be a customer here, except for Chipotle. That just seems like actually an unsafe place uh, to eat. Yeah. And, and so the you interview some workers, If correct me if I'm wrong, at the, the one that's in the base of the Empire State Building? I don't think I did, no. Oh, okay. Because I, I thought I... You, well, okay. Well, anyway, the first time I had Chipotle, it was when I was working near the Empire State Building. It was 2006 or seven, and it yeah. recently opened, or at least recently moved to New York. And there was these very long lines. It was very like exciting. Everyone, was, it was like a craze for it. Um, uh -huh. And then I guess part of you know shortening the line was they increased how quickly things were were made and, and so forth. And um, but I mean, Chipotle itself has had a bunch of they like was it not listeria? They had some, or maybe it was. They had some sort of they had multiple outbreaks of like pathogens that yes, um, you know, sickened people. And the um, and so that was a black mark. For the company, I think they, they lost a fair amount of business, and McDonald's owned it and then sold it. And I think the do you do you uh, listen to Doughboys, the comedy podcast ever? Uh, I think I've heard it once. But okay, no, they, I it's, so it's a comedy podcast about chain restaurants. Mm -hmm. So they both do fast food takeout and things like you know um, TJ Fridays or, or something like that. And they've mm -hmm. reviewed Chipotle a couple times, and they they themselves noted that the the quality of food has, has really decreased. Mm. Um, in the past couple of years, and I, you know, it, it, so this, so this is all, yeah, this is all, um, I guess part of one thing, and I, you know, I think this, I, I read somewhere that the, um, you know, one of the most, like the occupation that where people were most likely to contract COVID was you know working in a restaurant kitchen, um, mm -hmm. and, and then because, you know, people were, you know, delivery became just this like huge thing the pandemic even more than before and that you know maybe benefits somewhere like AAA versus like a standard restaurant that didn't have the setup to like quickly turn things out like that mm. um but yeah it's uh it seems pretty bad um yeah and to be clear like Chipotle had hepatitis outbreaks E. coli and norovirus in the past 10 years like this is happening all the time and like the people including people who work um, and sort of rest in the consultant restaurant support arm. So like the sort of higher up or white collar Chipotle workers, they also, the ones that have spoken to me are like this, they see it as a food safety issue. So when workers' rights are being systematically violated, you know, you can expect that there will be more outbreaks going forward. Totally. Right. So, so in this specific instance with these 600,000 possible violations, how do you think they were just like, well, they'll never catch us or they just didn't, you know, what like are what about um, Qdoba? Like, how are they doing in terms of this? Like, you know, how how did they this how did one place manage to like screw it up? I 
I really couldn't tell you why. I mean, my I don't know. I haven't yet had the time. And unfortunately, there aren't a ton of people like reporting about how fast food workers lives are um, in New York following these laws. Um, so I don't know if McDonald's is also, for example, systematically violating um, this. Um, and Chipotle is just like a loose cannon or something and just decided that, you know, they would just get away with it. Um, but I think it's clear that Chipotle just did not expect to ever have these complaints followed up on. Um, I mean, there are plenty of reasons to not expect serious enforcement of laws that only protect the lowest paid workers in a city. Um, I think part of it, and we haven't mentioned it yet, but I mean, part of the reason that this is being enforced and that this lawsuit is going forward is SEIU 32BJ, which organize, is the union that organizes Chipotle workers in New York City. They don't have a formal union, but they work with SEIU and that local has 175,000 members. Um, and so it's a pretty powerful institution and they were key in you know, holding rallies, helping workers organize um, walkouts and one day strikes and also getting their violations you know, on the record with the city um, so that it had you know, these lawsuits, it takes people coordinating and documenting all of this right, for it to ever happen. And so SEIU 32BJ, I think also is part of the reason that Chipotle is being slapped with this is that they are sort of rooted in um, some of the workforce at Chipotle. Mm -hmm. Okay, so another reason to support your local union is that they will be you know, advocating on your behalf when it comes to foodborne pathogens and, and, and other <laughs> yeah. such things that well, you might ingest and, and you know, against your will. Um, so another thing that a lot of people are talking about uh, these days uh, is, in the fast food world, is um, places that uh, where the, the workers have uh, don't want to work there anymore because they don't pay enough and people who were laid off during the pandemic were able to get better unemployment benefits than they uh, would have a couple of years ago. And so why would they want to go back to um, McDonald's or wherever uh, in, you know, a low pay, low skill job when they can um, sit on the couch and watch, uh, you know, Netflix all day long or, or whatever. And so the right is sort of seizing on this as like, you know, we're um, like, uh, you know, Biden socialism or something like, uh, the, you know, the lazy, uh, the lazy workers, um, uh, and you're going to end up paying $10 for a burger at McDonald's, um, especially if, uh, there's an increase in the minimum wage. Um, and then people on the left are saying sort of like, you know, this is nonsense and there's many good reasons why people would not want to return to working at fast food, some of which we talked about already. Um, mm -hmm. and especially because, you know, if you're in a hot kitchen, uh, that seems like a, a bad place to be during, uh, during the COVID pandemic. Um, so what, what are your thoughts on this, this controversy? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't pretend to have any sort of systematic analysis of like the April jobs report or something like that. You know, I talk to workers. That's what I do when I write. Um, and so some of it's anecdotal, but I'll just say, you know, some of the systematic information I do have is, for example, I wrote a lot about restaurant workers during the pandemic. So tipped workers, not Chipotle workers, but people who are either bartenders or servers, you know, at your at your local restaurant. And so when they were surveyed about the pandemic, um, I pulled up the numbers and ones that responded to this one survey done by sort of a worker center, a restaurant organizing organization, 83% said their tips were down. 66% said their tips were down by more than half. 41% say sexual harassment is up. 25% say it is up significantly. And then there's, of course, the risk of getting COVID. You know, about half of them say one of their coworkers or more had gotten COVID already. Um, this survey was done a few months ago at this point, maybe even six months ago. Um, 
So yeah, I think there are very obvious reasons that you would not want to be working at a low-wage service job. Um, it sucks even more than it did, and it already really sucked. Um, and so I think that's totally a, a part of the story. I mean, Chipotle, for example, of course, also has seen sort of, I mean, Chipotle has been, uh, I can't possibly pretend to know whether it's actually seeing more of this than other fast food chains, but sort of like viral photos of entire stores being closed because workers walked off the job. You know, you go on the Chipotle Reddit and it's just story after story of workers quitting and telling, you know, telling each other how it went. Other there's, like a, there's like a handwritten sign posted on the front door <laughs> yeah. saying like all the workers quit or something like this. Right, right. And then, and yeah, on, on the Reddit, it's like every, you know, a few times a day, there's a worker saying, you know, hey, congratulate me. It's my last day. I finally did it. I quit. I hate this job. Um, and so there is definitely some truth to the fact that workers are just not putting up with these things anymore, that they feel, you know, of course, when workers aren't going to starve to death, um, for leaving their job, they're more likely to leave it, right? This is a big argument for why, for example, we want universal health care. You don't want workers to feel that they can't leave a job because they're not going to have health care. So you want that to not be tied to employment. Um, it's the same thing with higher wages or, you know, having in enhanced unemployment benefits. Is that like it does make it easier for workers who are being subjected to, say, systematic sexual harassment or, you know, whatever is going on at places like Chipotle. You know, it's good for them to be able to leave. That said, you know, what employers are doing in response, this, there's been this wave of um, a few big companies have started offering raises and they do it with much fanfare and very slick press releases. Um, but the details of what's of what's being offered are, you know, it's very small. We're talking about like minuscule raises. You know, Tyson Foods is sort of the most cynical I've seen of this, um, where they said they blamed explicitly um, I, I forget how they phrased it, but, you know, they said uh, government benefits are too generous and this unemployment is making it too hard for us to um, retain workers. Tyson, again, was, you know, one of the worst companies during the pandemic as far as workers contracting COVID. They also rely on a huge percent of their workforce is undocumented. So the idea that their workers are living large on unemployment or something is just completely ridiculous. Um, and so they say in this announcement about giving raises that, you know, it's because of the government largesse that they need to do this, that so they also know maybe health concerns are, are relevant, as if that's not a big part of it. It clearly is a big part of it for a lot of workers um, at a poultry processing plant. But even there, Tyson, in, those, in their press release, did not say how much of a raise they're giving, which if a company won't even give a number, you have to assume it's just a tiny raise. McDonald's, same thing. They announced with much fanfare. Um, that they're giving raises. The fine print was only at corporate-owned locations, which is 5% of McDonald's. Um, it's mostly a franchise, franchise-owned. 95% franchise-owned. So we're talking about a couple hundred McDonald's across the country, and even there, it was an average increase of 10%, and they said, you know, it'll reach an average of $15 by 2024. So we're talking about, like, so little. Chipotle, too, they said they're raising wages to be an average of $15 an hour. Again, totally made up meaningless metric. Um, they said that the starting wage will be 11. Um, so that's the actual minimum that they're raising it to. So employers are not being pushed that hard, right? We're not talking about, you know, wages going up to the point of like crazy inflation. Um, we're talking about like pennies here and there by certain employers. Um, so yeah, that's the extent of sort of my view of this. Um, is that workers are getting a little more leverage, but we've got a long way to go towards any sense of like justice or serious bargaining power. Yeah. Um, I, I think it, it, it certainly makes sense that if you give people 
better unemployment insurance, they are somewhat less likely to return to the workforce. Like that, that's very very logical to me. Um, and you know, there's some sometimes this is like being presented as like you know the the some company some or, or maybe just like some restaurant somewhere in the middle of America is like we can't find anyone to hire. Like no like no one no one is applying for a job. And um, you know, I guess the the unemployment insurance bonus or like added at the added amount from the federal government is going to end at some point and so probably you know people will return to um the sort of you know labor market that existed before the pandemic more or less i think i don't know yeah Maybe i mean some people I... will be less likely to want to work in a kitchen as opposed to some other job outside or something because yeah i mean i'll of... just add that there was a comical example of this where i am i'm in pittsburgh right now which is where my whole family is and uh, there was some story in the local paper like a month ago about, you know, it was presented and this was why it was made fun of so much was sort of this way the story was presented was this boss at this ice cream shop outside of Pittsburgh couldn't find anyone to work there. And then he did something crazy. And it was that he raised the starting wage that he was offering okay, to, right. to $15 an hour, to be clear, not to like $50 an hour. Um, and he was inundated. He got thousands of applicants. So it was, it, there was no story. The story was just that, like, if you're paying below what's livable, people don't want to work there. Um, but this was presented as like this incredible innovative thinking by a boss who's like, you know, everything's against him in this labor market. But again, all it took was $15 an hour for thousands of people to apply to work at an ice cream store. So if we're we're not really talking about actual shortages here at all in my in my perspective. Yeah, this is not like a comp like complex economics to think that if you right. <laughs> offer a higher wage, more people might be interested in working for you. Um and yeah, I think I saw I saw that same, that same article. It's just like a local news story or something. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. Um, okay. Let me. Maybe we've got about an hour, but there's one other thing I wanted to ask, and this I guess will be the last thing, which is, yeah, how would um, how would you assess um, uh, the first you know couple months of the of the Biden presidency in terms of labor? And I think I mean from my perspective, he's done things. He's been more pro labor than I thought he would have been, and one of the things he did was recorded this like statement it was sort of a general statement but it was obviously in support of the vote in Bessemer and mm -hmm. you know Obama never did anything like that and I don't know who the last president who would have done anything like that would have been maybe Truman I, I don't even know if he you know if he would have right. um and so that did surprise me because the 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 Democrats have depended on you know unions union power for votes and organization and stuff but there hasn't they haven't done a lot in in exchange and there's also this legislation called the pro act which i don't know a ton about and maybe you could briefly sure, say sure. what what it aims to do yeah so i mean i think and i've written this um in recent months that you know what we're seeing from biden is sort of evidence of this broader shift that is happening that i think is pretty well established at this point which is a shift by both by liberals both in elected office and in the business community we're talking about like a fraction of the capitalist class here away from ultra austerity and this obsessiveness about deficit spending and so on um in favor of more fiscal expansion right so there is this sort of shift that is happening you know whether there's lots of debates um that i'm certainly not going to wade into right now about like is this the end of neoliberalism or something you know what is this now um, but so I think that is sort of our, where our understanding of what's going on should start is that it's not like Biden is sort of moving because he's this 
fantastic figure or something. You know, it's important. He's part of a moment. And I think the left certainly needs to recognize that there's a shift happening and sort of take advantage of it. Um, and yeah, part of that shift is that we're seeing somewhat, you know, pretty remarkable things. I mean, Biden's video saying, you know, union busters beware and things like that about Amazon. Um, you know, Biden has passed things at the executive level that have helped workers. You know, he's passed a $15 minimum wage for any company that's federally contracting with the state. Um, so it's going to affect, you know, hundreds of thousands of workers. Mm -hmm. um, well, was the NLRB one of the organizations that was sort of paralyzed because of not being not having appointments during the Trump administration? Yeah, the NLRB was definitely and also was being run by Eugene Scalia, who is just like a just cretin, uh, like a and boss. That is, that is the um, child of, of yeah, the late yeah. uh, Supreme Court justice. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. there was a really good New Yorker profile of him uh, yeah, like six or so months ago that yeah. uh, was interesting. Also, OSHA, I think, is sort of the key one. If you're talking about um, organizations that were paralyzed under the Trump administration, as far as workers' organizations, OSHA was has been gutted for a long time, but certainly under Trump, basically was non-existent. Um, there was no enforcement, um, and there were no you know violations as the pandemic hit, which you know cost. We're talking about people died. You know, OSHA left people to die. Um, there was no state intervention going on to help workers um, in conditions that were horrible. Um, and that's yeah, because, that, that's yeah. the article. This New York article seemed to say that like this was Scalia's, uh, the younger Scalia's main. Thing, yeah, is that, right. Like... Um, and so, but I think also like on the flip side, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm being you know obnoxious or dogmatic. I mean, I, in my criticisms of the Biden administration, but you know, Biden got a ton of sort of celebration from much of the labor movement when he issued this executive order or sort of um, recommendation early within the first week of his taking office saying that OSHA needed to come up with new standards for COVID, an emergency workplace standard, um, which was something people had been calling for for so long, right? During the whole pandemic, they said it's crazy that, you know, employers don't have to do anything um, to keep their workers safe. And so people applauded. And then the deadline he had given, um, the Department of Labor came and went. Um, nothing happened. And there is still has not been any emergency standard implemented. And at this point now, of course, the CDC just said, you don't actually have to wear masks anymore. So there may ultimately be no new standard, right? And so I think to be clear of like how much protections we're talking coming from the state, there's still like a lot uh, to be, uh, we're left wanting, I think. Um, and mm -hmm. just to add really in brief, um, the PRO Act, you know, in, in my sort of writing about what the Biden moment means for labor, um, I think obviously my perspective is that labor should take advantage of this access and this sway that it has to actually push for as much as it can. And one thing it is pushing for is the PRO Act, um, which is this sort of comprehensive labor law reform bill. People get, I think, uh, start like their eyes glaze over when you start talking about labor law. Um, <laughs> but it's just just as to say the Amazon campaign that we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, the union election in Bessemer would have looked incredibly different had the PRO Act been in existence. You know, everything the employer can do to bust unions um, and to stop unions from getting even to a first contract. The PRO Act kind of addresses in, in sort of granular detail. It adds teeth to violations, you know, huge penalties, financial for employers and even individual executives for breaking um, the law. Um, you know, every part of that union election would have looked different. So it's it's a very sort of um, far-reaching bill. It's actually just, I would just call it a radical bill. It's about as radical as, as I've ever seen. Um, yeah. And it's been moving through Congress right now. It's in the Senate. Um, and, you know, the left has been, like, pushing to get people on board. You know, no Republicans in the Senate will ever 
um, support it, but uh, well, it's probably not going to pass. Is the, would be right, the problem well, there. So the conversation is about filibuster reform, and so Biden, to, you know, at this point has been pushed and has said that it's a priority. He wants it on his desk to sign, um, and I think that is sort of the key test of the distinctions here between like a radical support for workers' empowerment versus this sort of liberal shift towards less of a sort of um, deficit concern um, or austerity is that there is no way that, you know, business um, is going to support the PRO Act. The Chamber of Commerce sees it as like an existential threat, right? Um, and so I think that is really the test case of how far we can go. And I think the shift just simply does not include empowering workers and actually redistributing power to them. It can include sort of adding bits and pieces of welfare to working class people. Um, but the PRO Act, I think, is really, you know, something that people should actually pay attention to as far as seeing the limits of this moment, um, as well as, you know, if it can if it can be pushed, I think that will be very significant. Um, and so the, uh, much of the left is and the labor movement right now is really focused on the PRO Act. And, you know, they've even flipped people like Manchin um, on this. So there is definitely a push that is happening. Um, and so I think that's something people should figure out, pay attention to, actually understand what it means. And because you see the actual sort of divisions that exist um, playing out right now around that. Mm -hmm. um, that's interesting. I, I missed that, that Manchin endorsed it. I mean, it makes a kind of sense if you think about his politics. But yeah, but the, I mean, the filibuster is, if he's not, if Manchin supports it, but then he uh, opposes changing the filibuster, then it's it, that's sort of meaningless, I guess. Um, so yeah, that continues to, to be a... Uh, an impediment for, for any sort of passing anything in, in this uh, stupid system we have. Um, okay, we've gone over an hour, so why don't we uh, end it there. Thank yeah. you for uh, for sure. the time, and thank you for, for your expertise. Um, if people want to follow uh, you in various places, what where should they go? What should they do? Um, so I write most of my articles and writing at Jacobin Magazine. Um, so you can search my name and find me there. Um, and then to follow my other work, freelancing and whatnot, and also uh, my inane tweets, you can follow me on Twitter um, <laughs> at Alex N Press. Um, and yeah, that's it. Yeah, you're, 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 uh, you're a good follow on, on Twitter, um, for sure. And um, so and people can follow me, I, I will not say whether I'm a good follower or not, uh, RACW. <laughs> and you know, Subscribe to this, like it, rate it, review it, whatever you want to do. Um, and uh, there's power in the union. I, I believe that. Um, so uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Alex. And thank you to our uh, viewers and listeners. And we'll see you again next time. Yep.